welcome back. Episode number 82 of the New York Pinches podcast in partnership with Inside the Rink. I'm your host, Jacob Berkowitz, and I'm alongside my co-host, Brennan Luca. And today, we're honored to have on Rangers reporter Vince McCagliano. We're going to be discussing briefly the coaching situation, then jumping over to roster management and more. But first, just want to let you guys know to go to InsideTheRink.com slash ESPN to subscribe to ESPN Plus to watch games and more. And yeah, let's get to it. And we are back with Rangers reporter Vince McCagliano. Vince, how's it going? Pretty good, guys. Just sitting around waiting for some coaching news. How about you guys? Yeah, we're all kind of doing the same thing, and we're just waiting for something to happen. And we've been basically talking about the same subjects, I feel like, for the past few weeks at this point, and we're all kind of nauseated at them. So we're not going to talk too much about coaches, uh, but we're going to start with that at least. Um, we Obviously, we keep hearing the same names. Everyone has. Laviolette, Hines are two main coaching candidates that everyone's been speaking about. Is that all just smoke screens right now until Quenville or if they uh they until until Bettman basically declares Quenville available or still not available? Or is there a fourth option that no one is talking about at all? It, it's <laughs> there's a lot to unpack there. You guys know. I mean, it's been going on for over a month now. I think what I've reported is probably similar i would think to what others have reported at this point and there's really not a whole lot new that i have to tell you today i mean i've been hearing and i've written this i don't know how many times you mentioned being nauseated about it i mean it's something that i feel like we've been kind of beaten to death in the last few weeks and that's why especially the last few days i'm not really feeling like there's a whole lot new for me to write or put out there about the coaching search but i i can tell you what i've been hearing for a while and that's that LaViolette is the favorite. Now, I think with each passing day, everybody's confidence in that grows a little less, a little weaker. So the longer that this lingers, the more seriously I think we have to all take the possibility that maybe there is something up Chris Drury's sleeve that, that we're not seeing. Now, the Quinville thing is not something that I would say we're not seeing. I heard even before Gallant got fired or mutually parted ways, whatever you want to call it, that Quinville was on the Rangers radar and there were at least some people in the organization who were intrigued by him. Now, I don't know if that's universal in the organization. I don't believe it is. Obviously, there would be a lot of controversy behind that hire. I think at least a portion of the fan base would be against that hire because of the role that he played with that sexual assault scandal with the Blackhawks. We know that at the very least he was aware of what was going on and had no problem covering it up or sweeping it under the rug. So there's a lot of ethical questions I think that would come with a hiring like that. But I do believe that there is at least some level of interest from some people in the organization and that's why I would not dismiss that possibility. And if you look around right now, I know with pretty fair certainty that for a while, the Rangers were waiting to see what was going to happen in some other situations. Of course, Pittsburgh and Mike Sullivan would have been a dream scenario, but that was always going to be a long shot. And now it looks like certainly he'll stick around with them hiring the new GM in Kyle Dubas. There was also some curiosity about what was going to happen in Toronto. Now, we don't know with 100% certainty that Sheldon Keefe is staying, but the new GM there, Brad Tree Living, sounded open to the idea, and a couple of weeks have gone by now, and he's still sticking around. And from what I've heard, it's at least likely that he'll keep his job. Now, maybe the Rangers have some information that Keefe 
could shake loose in the coming weeks. And I do believe that if he were to be fired, they would want to interview him. So I, he's another name I would put out there, but right now you can't bank on that because he's still employed by the Maple Leafs. So I think the Rangers were waiting to see what else materialized around the league. If any other coaches were let go, I certainly think they were taking that patient approach for that reason. Now, one guy that did shake loose was John Hines, and it's pretty easy to connect the dots about why the Rangers would have interest there. College teammate with Chris Drury at BU, they won a national championship together. I do believe that there's still a fairly good relationship between those two guys. So if Drury is looking for more of a collaborative relationship with the next coach, a guy that he feels like maybe if he wants some changes made, will cooperate with him and will be on the same page with him. There are some people that believe that Hines should be take ser taken seriously because of that. I know last week the whispers about him were kind of increasing, but again, for me all along, at least the people that I've been talking to have viewed LaViolette as the favorite. I know that he's been in New York at least once, maybe twice, and I've heard there has been as many as three interviews with him. So... I think that they've gone pretty deep in with LaViolette. And I think in the event that they're not waiting on Quinville and that nobody else that they're interested in shakes loose, he would still be the betting favorite for me. I had somebody tell me last week in the middle of the week that they thought that the details were in the process of being finalized with him. There was a couple I's they had a dot T's they had across, including meeting with the owner, James Dolan. I don't know if LaViolette has met with Dolan yet, but I was led to believe that he could have been announced by the end of the week last week. I tweeted that last week. Now, it didn't happen. Here we are on Monday. We still don't have word. If something were announced at any minute, like if you guys see me jumping on my phone in a second, it would not shock me at all. I do think that it could happen at any time right now. But again, especially now with the Rangers being the only remaining team that has not made a decision on their next coach, there doesn't seem to be much of a rush from them. So that makes everybody wonder if there's something else going on here. I think Quinville is the guy that I would take the most seriously as far as a wild card candidate right now. I don't think it's going to be Chris Knobloch or Jay Leach or some of the younger whether it's an AHL coach or an NHL assistant, I do think the Rangers have interest in, in those two guys in particular, and at least spoke with them and did some homework on them. But my understanding is that they expect to hire somebody who has done the job before, whether you like it or not, we could definitely have a conversation about whether that's the right strategy for them to have right now. But I think not only management, but also ownership has such high expectations for this team that they're not comfortable handing it over to a guy who's never done done the job before and a guy who they feel at least would be a little bit more of a roll of the dice. So I'm talking in circles here. I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself or telling you guys things that you've already heard. But for me, if I had to put my own money on it, which I'm not doing, but if I had to, I would still be saying Laviolette because the people that I talk to have been telling me that for weeks. But again, each passing day, there's a little more uncertainty about what exactly is going on here. Do you think um, if the two coaches in the finals right now were young first-timers instead of reruns, that Knobloch would get heavier consideration? Not necessarily, no. But I do think the narrative that first-time coaches don't succeed at least right off the bat too often is not necessarily helped by what we've seen in these playoffs. But no, I, I don't I don't think that they're 
basing their decision on what's going on in the, in the finals right now, or what's going on with other teams in the playoffs right now. I think that Drury has dreamed all along, even around the time that he was searching for his first head coach, when he hired Gallant, that one of the coveted coaches around the league, whether it's a Sullivan, I know the Rangers have had interest in Rod Brindamore. Obviously, he never left Carolina. I know the Rangers have had interest and put out feelers before for Barry Trotz. Now he's locked up with the Nashville Predators. I think they believe that they built a roster. And especially you look at the highly paid guys, the, the core veteran guys on this team who are in their primes right now. They believe that they've built a win now roster and they are gung-ho on doing everything that they can to win a Stanley Cup championship, not in two or three years, but right now they want to get it done this upcoming season. Obviously, we saw all the eggs they put in the basket last season when they went out the deadline and made big splashes with Kane and Tarasenko. So they're doing everything they can to win right now. And I think that they want a fairly big name coach to, to get them over that hump. I think that that has been their focus. But unfortunately for them, the top, top coaches in the league have not shaken loose there. There hasn't been any movement as far as an availability of one of those guys where they can swoop in and offer them a huge contract. The money wouldn't be the issue. The Rangers would certainly be willing to pay. I think whatever it takes to get one of those big name guys, but the two summers when they've been looking for coaches two years ago with Gallant and now this year, those big name guys haven't been available. And I think that's been maybe a point of frustration. That's been something that they were hoping in the last few weeks that maybe something would happen where somebody like a Sullivan pride loose, but it was always going to be a long shot. So I unfortunately think the perception and it, and it's got some truth to it for sure is that when jury made the decision to part ways with Gallant, he didn't have, his guy lined up. They didn't have a surefire plan in place. They were always going to be patient and wait and see what happened. And now they're reaching a point where they got to make a decision soon. And a lot of people are feeling like because it's dragged out this long, they're not necessarily in love with the options that are out there. But as far as the first time guys, as far as a guy like Knobloch, I mean, right from the get go, I was hearing that's unlikely I know that they think highly of a guy like Knobloch, but I think they'd like him to kind of wait and, and be groomed a little bit longer. I wrote this last week. I had a source say to me, if they were to go with LaViolette, who would likely only be here for, let's say, two or three years, you never know. But, you know, the shelf life for a guy like that who's been around the league so much is typically relatively short that they could see a situation where a guy like Knobloch is groomed for a couple more years. And I've talked to people that are close to him who feel like he's in no rush. He's not like anxious to, to get out of there. He's happy in Hartford right now. He's got kids. I know that are going to school up there. So I think he's fairly comfortable in the situation he's in right now. So I did have somebody lay out the scenario to me a couple of weeks ago where they said LaViolette could be there for a few years and there could sort of be this, maybe unspoken or maybe spoken agreement that when the next head coaching cycle comes around for this team, that maybe at that point, Knobloch would be very much in the mix, but I don't sense that they're looking to go in that direction right now. Gotcha. Um, so sticking with coaches, but away from the coaching search here, uh, you know, I watch a lot of the post-game coverage and uh, watch the pressers after and I hear you asking questions frequently. Um, and I know it's a lot of times you ask a very specific question that I also wanted to get an answer to and coaches, uh, you know, like to give a stock hockey guy kind of response um, that isn't very elucidating. 
how, how frustrating is that for you? And then do you also then try to speak with him one-on-one away from a camera to get something off record that gives you background? Uh, could you just go into that process a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on the coach. That That's a huge part of it. Gallant was very guarded. I think he was very protective of his players when talking through the media. You would very rarely hear him criticize an individual. I think sometimes he slipped into it. Like you would try to ask him a line of question and sometimes you would get lucky where you would actually get a glimpse into what he was really thinking about an individual player. But for the most part, I think because of his background as a player, and I'm sure he had experiences where maybe he was called out and and it rubbed him the wrong way or whatever it might be. I always sense that he was very sensitive about that. And I do think that the players appreciated that. I think that there were certainly some issues with him and his communication with the players and, and sort of the lack of relationships or putting time into getting to know the guys. But I do think that they appreciated the way that, that he sort of tried to deflect criticism off of them. And you noticed there were an occasional times. I mean, I could think of a handful of them throughout his time here where he would lay into the group and say, we didn't play hard enough and kind of call them out in that way. But it was always about the group. It was very rarely about an individual. And when it came to strategic stuff or asking him about adjustments or anything along those lines, he was also very guarded with that. Now, I think that's in part because of the style of coach that he is. I think he liked to keep things simple. And so therefore a lot of his answers to us seem kind of vague and general and simplistic, but you can look back on David Quinn, who I covered for two seasons, my first two years on the beat. I think he was a little more open when it came to that sort of thing. And I think if you look around the league, you know, I've talked to other reporters that cover other teams. Like you look at a guy like John Cooper with Tampa Bay. I think he's a really straight shooter for the most part. And I think you're going to get a lot of eloquent quotes from him and really thoughtful responses from him. So I think a lot of that is about the individual. Now, if I'm being honest with Gallant, was it frustrating at times because you felt like you weren't getting a lot out of him? And when you pressed, he would very quickly get defensive. And once he got defensive, he had the tendency to sort of clam up. So it would reach a point where it was like, okay, am I really making a difference or am I really going to get any more out of this guy by continuing to hammer the same issue when I already know what he's going to say? So that's kind of a debate that I feel like myself and probably some of the other reporters have every day is like, there's certain topics I feel like I have to press him on and I'm going to do that because it's my job to do it. And I feel a responsibility to do it. But at a certain point, if you know that he's just going to snap and storm out of the room or, you know, basically any substance involved in that conversation is going to go out the window. Like, does it really pay for you to do it in that moment? So you're sort of picking your spots. And also, I can give you another example with him in the heat of the moment after the game, when I know emotions are running high. And this goes for players sometimes as well. It might not make the most sense to really hammer him on a specific topic then because you're not going to get a great answer. You're just going to get a guy who's responding with emotions and anger and probably being very short with you. Whereas if you wait a day and then you go and talk to him about it, you're going to get something that's much more thoughtful. They'll have time to process. They'll have time to sort of collect their thoughts and calm down a little bit. So that's something that I definitely do with players. And frankly, I can tell you this as well the opportunities to have these one-on-one conversations, sort of the off the record conversations that you're talking about. That's something I get to do every practice day with players. So that was incredibly valuable 
this season because you get to know guys on more of a personal level. You can have conversations with them where you reason with them a little bit more. You try to understand their line of thinking. It doesn't always have to be something where I quote them or or jump out and report it. And I think that that's really valuable. The coaching stuff is a little more structured. Like, you know, you're going to have access to the coach every single day, but it's always in a group setting. And it's very rarely that you're going to be able to pull him aside. Now, there are occasions where you're able to do that, but it's not a daily thing like it is with the players. So my long winded answer, I guess, is yes, there are times when you try to have those one on one conversations and try to, you know, maybe get a better idea of where they're coming from or maybe dig in on a topic that you feel like they might not be as comfortable talking about in front of the cameras, but I would say it's more frequent that that happens with the players than it is with the coach. Gotcha. With the cap crunch, obviously coming, it's been noted. You, you talk about the, uh, the salary cap and the, or lack, lack thereof salary cap space, um, pretty eloquently actually. Um, and you, you painted out really well for the fans and we honestly, as on behalf of everyone, thank you. Um, but with the cap crunch coming, how many rookies do you think make this team next year? Oh, that's a good question. Um, One, I would probably say. I would think between Othman and Cooley, I could see one of them making the team. I, I guess it's possible for two of them to make the team, but I would look at that as more of a long shot. Now, I'm not including Zach Jones in that. I don't know if he's going to make the team. Quite frankly, I don't think the organization is sold on him as an every night defenseman. I just think in that bottom pair role, they're looking for guys with more size, with more of a defensive mindset. Now, that might be an antiquated way of thinking, but that is certainly the way that I think that they've thought. Now, maybe that was Gallant. You know, we have to see who the new coach is going to be, too, before I think I feel more comfortable saying something along those lines. But I think what we saw with Jones is, that bottom pair role where you're not getting a lot of power play time doesn't really suit him very well. And I don't think the Rangers are going to put him in the top four. And he's certainly not going to quarterback the power play ahead of Adam Fox. So I don't think Jones is in a really advantageous situation, quite frankly, in this organization. It's almost similar to the spot that Nils Lundqvist was in last season, where it's like you're kind of blocked on the power play and you're not really well suited for what they want out of their bottom pair. They certainly want more of a, a guy like Nico Mikola, who's going to be more responsible in his own end. Who's going to have more size. Who's going to play with more physicality. That's the kind of guy that I think they want in that spot. But even if Jones were to make the team, he's not a rookie anymore. So he wouldn't count as a rookie. So I would think between Cooley and Othman, they're going to need some of these young guys who are on their entry-level contracts because of the cap crunch that you that you talked about. They're going to need some of those guys to help fill out this roster because they're not going to be able to afford free agents at all of these open positions. But I do think, especially in Othman's case, that because he is going to be coming straight from the junior level, that it's likely that they're going to want him to get at least a little seasoning in the AHL as opposed to sticking him right into the NHL. Now, if he has a great summer and he comes into camp and crushes it, he could certainly change that. But if I was placing a bet on it right now, and I've spoken to a few scouts about this as well, I think most people feel like the logical next step for him is at least a little bit of time in the AHL. Maybe it's a month, maybe it's a few months, maybe it's a full season. I, I think I could see that being the path that he takes. 
Cooley, though, just spent a full season on the AHL roster and was their leading goal scorer. And I spoke to Chris Knobloch about this a few weeks ago, actually, and he raved about him as who, who he felt was one of the players who made the biggest strides over the course of the season. And we know that the Rangers are going to need some guys in that bottom six to help fill out some of those spots that are open right now. And I could certainly still see Cooley snagging a spot on the fourth line. So I might give him a slight edge as far as rookies who could make the team, but I think him and Othman will definitely both be in the mix. You know, could a young defenseman make the leap? I don't know. I'm not really super convinced that they're sold on Matthew Robertson right now. He would be a logical guy maybe to look at for a bottom pair spot, but his season in Hartford, I think, was a little bit underwhelming. And then some of the younger guys who were involved, like an Adam Sakura, I think he's another year or so away, you know, maybe halfway through the season, something like that. But I don't think he's going to break camp with the team. So I would say probably one rookie on the roster with Cooley and Othman being the guys I would look to first and foremost. Speaking of the cap crunch here, do you think Goodrill will be a cap casualty? And if so, how hard would it be to trade him? I think it's possible. I've had people been, I mean, during the season I was hearing this because I'm very interested in the cap stuff as you guys touched on. And I was talking to a source before even the trades happened. Like I know it was definitely before the Patrick Kane trade happened and we were looking ahead to this season and I was saying, you know, they're really not going to have much money to spend at all. And their options for guys that they could move are limited because guys like Panarin and Truba and, Trocheck and Zabanajad all have no movement clauses. And then, you know, guys like Adam Fox and Igor Shesterkin obviously aren't going anywhere. So their their options for who they're going to move are very limited. And the two names that I was asked about were Barclay Gaudreau and Ryan Lindgren. And I think if you look at those two guys, Lindgren makes $3 million a season and Gaudreau makes $3.6 or so million dollars a season, especially because Gaudreau makes more money. And is a guy that's more of a bottom six guy, whereas Lindgren's been a top pair defenseman for them for a few seasons now. I think it would be harder for them to let go of Lindgren. And again, Goudreau would offer a little bit more savings because his salary is a little bit higher. So if they were going to move anybody, I've been saying this for months now, I think Goudreau is the most likely guy. But with all that being said, I don't think they necessarily want to move him. It's not like the situation last summer with Patrick Nemeth where this is a guy who they were paying and they didn't have any intentions of playing. Like if Goudreau is on this roster, they're going to have a spot for him. And whether that's as a fourth line center, which, you know, 3.6 is a lot of money as I've written to, to pay for a guy like that. Or you look at their right wing depth chart right now. The only returning guy they have is Capo Caco. So Goudreau's a guy that they could slide over to the right side very easily and could play on the third line maybe even play on the second line. We've seen them do that with him before. And I think they value a lot of what he brings to the table, the intangibles, the versatility, the physicality, the grit, the, you know, the forecheck, the PK, all those elements. I think they want to add more of those elements into their lineup, quite frankly, but they don't want to have to pay $3.6 million for it. So I do think they're going to explore options as far as moving him, but I don't think it's going to be a trade like the Nemeth trade where they're going to attach an asset to him to move him. I don't think Drury would be willing to do that because he still values the player. So if there's a team out there that would offer the Rangers a mid-round draft pick for Goudreau, I could certainly see them entertaining that idea. Otherwise, I would not completely dismiss the buyout option. His contract is structured in a really interesting way. 
it would not only save them $3.6 million next season to buy him out, they actually have it written into the contract where it would save them an additional $200,000. So by buying him out, they would save themselves $3.8 million next season on top of $3.7 million the season after. So in the short term, buying him out makes a lot of sense, especially because after this season, this coming season, the cap is expected to rise significantly. So if your main concern is getting through next year with as much cap space as possible, knowing the cap space is going to open up for the 24-25 season, buying him out is certainly something I think that they might talk about. The problem is once you get beyond those next two seasons, then you're looking at like, I think it's five additional years of having dead cap money because of that. And nobody ever wants to be in that situation. So the buyout option isn't a no brainer and it's not ideal in a lot of ways, but I think it almost makes more sense than a trade where let's say some team wanted you to attach a draft pick to him or attach a prospect to him just so you could move him. I think the two options would be trade him. If you can get a little something for him, or if you really feel like you need the cap space, I think they might consider buying him out, but I don't feel like it's, it's a no brainer type of move. Like Nemeth was last year. I still wouldn't be shocked if he's on the team next season, but if you're looking for a guy to move, the options are really limited and he would probably be the first guy that I look at. Gotcha. Um, now that the uh, Kratzoff situation is fully over with him gone um, and, and Glenn has his coach also gone as well. Uh, is there anything else you can tell us that went on behind the scenes with that situation that fans may not be aware of? Kratzoff? Oh boy. Yeah. I, well, I mean, the fans might not be aware of, I feel like, you know, I know I've written a ton about it over the last few years. I'm sure others have as well. I mean, things were not good behind the scenes. That's, that's as simple as I could put it to you. I think early on there were some maturity issues with him for sure. Uh, I also think that those were exasperated by some issues that he had with the front office. I think it's been pretty well documented that him and Chris jury had their run-ins and I've heard from multiple people who are either in the organization or used to be in the organization that there were some pretty heated moments between him and jury, but not just him and jury, him and others involved in the development process in the organization as well. I know there was some frustration early on. He felt like he was going to come right to the NHL or come to the NHL very quickly after he was drafted. And when things didn't fall into place, I don't think he handled it very well. And then I think that sort of set off an unfortunate uh, chain of events. But I mean, in the last year or so, I know, especially that when it came time for him to get this sort of final chance with the Rangers when he came early last summer and spent a lot of time in New York or in the New York area leading into training camp that he was trying to do all the right things and he was saying all the right things. You know, we talked about having conversations with the players in the locker room. He's a guy I spent a decent amount of time talking to this past season just to get a feel for where he was at. And I always got the sense with him that he was trying to be really careful with what he said, because he knew that he had had missteps in the past and he wanted to do everything he could to put his best foot forward now. So I do think that on that side of it, there was some maturation from him, but on the playing side of it, it never really clicked for him. And we could argue about was that, him did was he not a great draft pick did they reach for him was there some kind of issues with his development process or was it opportunity we saw that Gerard Gallant never seemed to be very interested in playing him for any kind of a long stretch 
I certainly do not think that Gallant was a big fan of the player, but I don't think he was alone. I think by the time it got to this season, I think certain people in the organization were kind of done with him and weren't really willing to stick their necks out for him anymore. I had one source tell me when I was working on, I did this big piece during the season, uh, sort of a five-year look back on the letter and everything that happened in the organization in the five years since they sent out that letter announcing the rebuild. And I had one person tell me when we were talking about Kratzoff among many other draft picks that all of his friends in the organization, all the people who were on his side are gone since Jeff Gordon and John Davidson and a lot of scouts and people that work for them have left. Chris Drury has over the course of the last couple of years really revamped this front office. There are some holdovers, but there's a lot of new blood in there as well, including a scouting department that looks much, much different than it did under Gordon. So I just think, you know, by the time we got to this season, even though Kratzoff was trying to do all the right things, he was never going to get a great opportunity here. And I also think in the opportunities that he did have, he didn't really do enough to kind of stamp his spot and say, you know what, you can't take me out of this lineup. So in my mind, there's a lot of blame to go around on both sides. I mean, you know, I, we could go into specific examples and stories and things like that, but unfortunately it, it just didn't work out. And, you know, I think there were some things that happened along the way that were pretty unfortunate. Some of them self-inflicted by him and some of them where I think the organization probably could have handled it better from being honest. Do you think uh, Severson's extension with Columbus impacts negotiations with Miller? I don't think I wrote this on Twitter the other day. It's not an apples to apples thing. Like Keandre Miller's agent, I don't think is going to come into negotiations and say, we want what Severson got. Like that's, that's certainly not going to be the case. I think if you're looking for apples to apples, you got to look at what some other guys in Keandre's spot got when their entry-level contract expired. And for me, that is going to land them in a pretty wide range of salaries. Like I've talked to a lot of people about this, even going back during the season. And of course the Rangers would want to say, Oh, well, Ryan Lindgren, we gave him a three-year deal for $3 million per season. And that would be a great thing for you to get. He's a top four defenseman. You're a top four defenseman. You're both left-handed. You know, there's a lot of comparisons we could make here and we'd love for you to take that kind of money. But on Miller's side, they're going to look at it and say, no, no, no. We're much more productive from a point standpoint. Uh, Miller had 43 points this season. Lindgren's never come close to that. When you look at the skill set and the upside and all the physical traits that Keandre has, I think there's a lot of reasons to believe that there's a much higher ceiling for him to reach than what we see with Lindgren. And I also think if you look at his usage in the past couple seasons, I mean, he was second on the team in average ice time per game behind Adam Fox last year. So I know that Miller's side is going to go into that negotiation saying this is one of the most useful, impactful players on your team. This is a guy who you rely on heavily, and now you're going to need to pay him as such. So I certainly don't think he's going to get what Lindgren got. His salary is going to be higher than that. Some people have said that they think he's going to ask for $5 million per season. You can look at some comparisons. You know, I threw it out there. Shea, Shea Theodore from the Vegas Golden Knights. I think he got right around five when his entry-level contract expired. There's a handful of other guys that have come in around that high fours, low fives kind of a number. Charlie McAvoy is another one. But I also think because of the cap crunch, the Rangers just aren't going to go there. So the number that I've kind of settled on is I think it's going to be 
mid to high threes, maybe early fours is about the average annual value where they might sort of compromise and meet in the middle. But I do think it's going to be a hard negotiation because I do think, and Miller was pretty upfront about this, this season as well, that, you know, he wants to maximize his value. So I don't begrudge him at all for trying to get as much as he can. The cap situation the Rangers are in certainly isn't his fault. And so I think you're looking at a pretty tough negotiation. I think this is going to be the toughest negotiation that Chris Drury has this summer. I think the Lafreniere negotiation will be relatively easy. I think he's going to be sort of a bridge deal, a two-year kind of a thing, two point, let's say five or so million dollars, maybe a little bit more than what they gave Capo Caco, but I think it's going to be very similar, the structure of the deal. Miller, though, there's a wide range of outcomes here, and that includes the years as well, because- Miller's side could look at it and say, okay, we're willing to take a short-term deal because we're betting on ourselves. And we feel like in a couple of years, our value is going to be even higher. And they're anticipating as well that the salary cap will go up. So teams will be able to offer him a bigger average annual value at that point. But at the same time, you know, he might want the long-term security. So if they could find a salary number that they're comfortable with, maybe he would be willing to take a long-term deal. So I think there's a lot of different possibilities for Miller right now. I don't think it's going to be as low as three. I don't think it's going to be as high as five, but you know, you got, you can try to figure out where it's going to meet in the middle. I think it's going to be somewhere in between those two, those two uh, numbers and and we'll see where it goes from there. All right. Thank you so much, Vince. We're going to have, we have one segment that we like to do with, uh, we did it twice with Bill Pito. We do the MSG, obviously the MSG 150. We do the fastest 150 in podcast, so it's just kind of rapid fire questions, and we'll get you out of here. Thank you so much for your time. Um, but we're gonna start. You ready? Yep. Yep. All right, let's go now. Whose deal do you think gets done first, Lafayette or Miller? Lafreniere. How confident are you that Mott resigns? I'll give it. I said over fifty percent. I'll give it like sixty percent. Who's the funniest ranger not named Panarin? Ooh, good question. Funniest Ranger not named Panarin. Mm, Lafreniere is pretty funny. Lindgren is pretty funny. Trocheck actually, over the course of the season, the more I got to know him, Trocheck's got a pretty good sense of humor. He's a fun guy to, to mess around with. Hmm. Some of the young guys, actually, you know who I get a real kick out of and has gotten so much better as far as confidence using English and and just kind of coming out of his shell? Capo Caco, Philip Heedle also got it. Like a lot of the young guys are, are, are fun and kind of light and, and like you could see they feel a lot more comfortable in that locker room environment now. And so they're much more open and, and I feel like, you know, showing personality and that sort of thing. So I would definitely point to some of the young guys. Braden Schneider, really funny and really nice kid. Um, so I know I just named like five there, but yeah, th- those are the ones who come to mind off the top of my head. Favorite away arena to go to? I would say best arena experience as far as, you know, you want to go and enjoy a hockey game, Montreal. That's got to be it. Montreal is awesome. And it's also an awesome town, great food, really good bar scene. Everybody's speaking French, so it's you, you really feel like you're in a different country. Montreal is really cool. And the in-game experience there, it, it nothing beats it. I mean, the whole place sings the Canadian National Anthem in French before the game goes up. All the lights go down. This little kid comes and skates on the ice with like a torch. Like you, you get goosebumps all over your arms. Montreal is awesome. Uh, best deli in Westchester? Anthony's in Mamaronek. 
uh, uh, NHL arena with the best food? You know, it's hard for me to say because the only place where I really eat concessions is Madison Square Garden, which I do think has a lot of really good options. So just really quickly, I'll give you a little, uh, I don't know if you care too much about this, but most arenas, they have like a kitchen or a media dining room where they have their own chefs who cook a a meal just for the media. But when it comes to the Rangers, they have... Uh, like vouchers that they gave each reporter that allows you to go to any concession stand in the arena. So I have tried, I think, every concession stand in Madison Square Garden, and they've got a pretty diverse menu and a lot of different options. So Madison Square Garden has good food, but as far as the best media meal in the league, we, me and the reporters talk about this all the time, Detroit is awesome. They have a crazy display of like all these different kinds of food and buffets and stuff. And Carolina is awesome because they do the barbecue. Like when you go there for the morning skate, you smell that they're slow cooking the whole hog for you. They always do the pulled pork, but then they have all kinds of other barbecue stuff too. So as far as the media meals go, I would say Detroit and Carolina. All right. And that does the fastest 150 in podcast right now. Vince, thank you so much for jumping on with us. You gave us way more time than, than you said you could. We really appreciate it, man. Thank you. Not a problem. Sorry, I, that was a lot more than 150 for those. The, oh, the, no, that's all right. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be thinking about the funniest player thing now. Like it's gonna, uh, someone else is gonna hit me. You know who used to be the funniest? Ryan Strom. That would have been yeah. a no-brainer. Strom was great. Uh, but now, yeah, Panarin would be a good choice. But a lot of those other guys I named would be in there as well. So. Cool. Right. Thank you so much for way, coming on. Um, I, and I just want to add that I, I, uh, I talked to a lot of fans and. We are all very appreciative of the kind of questions and reporting that you do. We really feel like you represent us as fans and you ask the hard questions. So we really appreciate the work you do and also really appreciate you coming on today. I appreciate that. That means a lot. I definitely, I definitely try. I always think of this job. I'm a huge sports fan. So I always try to think of it as what kind of content would I want to read or listen to if I was a fan? What kind of questions would I want asked if I was a fan? And that's how I try to tackle the job every day. So I appreciate hearing that. Thank you. Uh, is there anything you want to, obviously everyone knows who you are, but is there anything you want to punch in while you're working on or anything like that? No, I just, I just hope that they hire a coach soon. I, my bachelor party is coming <laughs> up in, in nine days. And if they haven't announced a coach in nine days, I'm in big trouble. So I just hope, they do. <laughs> I just rough. hope they do it soon. All right. Vince, All right. We'll have fun on your bachelor party. Thanks yeah. guys. Appreciate it.